And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. Of course, it is the hump day edition of The Real Investment Show. Because we're just trying to get through this week. Of course, today is the big FOMC meeting. We'll talk about that tomorrow here on the show with Michael Leibowitz because we'll know what Jerome Powell actually says this afternoon. But the big question is, is this the last rate hike for the Fed, right? I mean, this has been what the market's been hoping for. The market's been rallying on this whole issue, hoping for the end of the Fed rate hikes. And we're going to get back to cuts sometime soon is the expectation. Of course, you really have to ask yourself, why with the Fed cut rates when the markets are doing great? I mean, there's uh, the Dow is up 11 days in a row. That is a very, very long streak for the Dow to be positive every single day, right? So, you know, we talk about these buying and selling stampedes in the markets. And, you know, if you just think about kind of action in the market, the way it works, you know, their markets can only go so far higher before they have to have a correction. It's just kind of the natural cycle of the markets. You know, we talk about moving averages, why they're important, why they kind of act like gravity uh, to stock prices and, and tends to pull things kind of back to earth every now and then. Um, but again, we've had a very good extended stretch in the markets, and that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. Earnings so far as we've been through earnings season, been pretty good, right? Companies beating earnings estimates. Outlooks, not bad. You know, not just, not, they're not, you know, blowing the doors off or anything about how great the economy is, but they're not terrible. So this is also giving a bit of bid under stocks here as we kind of go through this cycle. But today, you know, with that, right, that means the economy's doing okay. We're not falling off the cliff here. And, you know, there's really no economic stress to speak of. In fact, consumer sentiment yesterday coming in much stronger than expected. Consumers feeling a lot more confident about the markets. In fact, consumer confidence about higher stock prices has now returned. So the correction, you know, last year, consumers were very downbeat on the stock markets, expecting lower and lower stock prices, right? That was that correction phase we were in. Now that the market has been rallying, that concern over with. In fact, consumers now very much expecting higher stock prices over the remainder of the year uh, and into next year. So again, with that kind of a backdrop, you have to ask yourself, why would the Fed cut rates? You know, if I could hold rates at 5% or 5.25% and just leave them there and the markets and the economy are doing fine, that just gives me a lot of ammunition for when we do ever have a recession, if we ever have a recession ever again is the question, right? But why would I cut rates, right? The Fed needs a reason to actually need to be cutting rates, and that would be the onset of a recession or some type of, you know, financial event, you know, uh, economic event, et cetera. Nothing, but the markets are betting on these rate cuts, even though there's really no reason for the Fed to cut rates. Well, you know, we'll see how this works out, but this is going to be a big challenge. Now, over the weekend, uh, this past weekend, we had a candy coffee. I joined uh, Danny Ratliff and Richard Rosso to talk about the, the economy, the markets, trading, all that type of stuff. Uh, Brent Clanton is working feverishly right now to get that production put up on the website. So if you missed the candy coffee this past weekend, you'll be able to get access to it and watch uh, all of that. I was kind of cranky because I didn't have enough coffee way too early in the morning on a Saturday. But uh, we had a bunch of questions that came in and we couldn't get to all of them. And we, you know, we tried to get through a lot of them. 
We couldn't get to all of them, so Danny has brought some of them in today. So we're going to spend the show today kind of going through some of those questions, answering those questions from this past weekend's candy coffee. So hopefully we can get to some of the questions we weren't able to get to during the candy coffee. So uh, we'll, we'll kind of work on that with Danny today um, as we go forward. But, you know, again, kind of the big news for today is going to be what Jerome Powell says. Is this the last rate hike for the Fed? Do they hint that they are now going to pause here or do they leave the window open for higher rates? This is going to be the question. Now, yesterday we had two big earnings announcements. We had Microsoft and Google came out. Microsoft basically saying everything's great. They're making money, very profitable. A little bit weak on their guidance, so the stock was down a little bit after hours yesterday, down about 1%. Um, we'll see how it does today. Uh, Google, on the other hand, kind of really killing it on the AI side, saying that the outlook for increased revenue, um, particularly through uh, AI, is, is really there. And so that stock's going to be trading up fairly sharply this morning, at least at the open, uh, according to futures. So uh, again, we're getting into the mega cap earnings. We're going to see a lot more of those over the course of this week and next week. And that's really going to be kind of driving the market again because that's what's been driving the market. Those guys are going to continue to support the market simply because of their weighting within the indexes. But here's what you need to know before the bell this morning is that, again, absolutely nothing wrong with the markets. Uh, we are actually breaking, we are just on the verge of breaking out to a new 52-week high. And, you know, this has really kind of been the case this year is that the markets kind of go through these very brief consolidation phases and then we kind of break out to a new 52-week high. One of the differences uh, this time is that the markets never retraced back to that 20-day moving average. And that's been kind of the hallmark of this market uh, really ever since the beginning of this year is we get these kind of pullbacks and these little bit of corrections in the markets back to the 20-day. And that would be kind of a level of support. The markets would kind of work to an oversold condition and bounce off of that. We never really got that. Over the past week or so, we've just pretty much traded sideways above that 20-day moving average. In fact, well, fairly decently trading above that. And the markets have maintained this kind of MACD buy signal as well. So again, stocks are doing fine. The buy signals are in place. Absolutely nothing to be concerned about here. Markets remain overbought here on a short-term basis. But again, because of the bid that's being put underneath stocks by the earnings right now that are coming in, that's keeping the markets well elevated. Again, once we kind of get through earnings over the course of the next week or so, and really get the bulk of those big cap gains behind us, we may see a better opportunity for this market to correct. And again, as we've been talking about, the deviations are just too great right now. Uh, that gravity that we were talking about uh, earlier has to pull those stock prices back down at some point. The question is just what's going to be that cause? Is it simply just going to be the fact that um, you know, everybody's kind of in the pool? If you take a look at consumer and investor sentiment, it's getting very, very elevated again. We're back into extreme greed territory. You take a look at the long positions of investors. They are very long the market right now, so particularly on the more speculative side and in the options side of the market where you see a lot of call options being bought. Investors are getting very long biased in the markets, basically saying everybody's now back in the pool. As Sam Stovall once said, he says if everybody's in the pool, right? then who's left to buy? That's the question. Of course, that, that ultimately leads to some type of at least short-term correction. And again, just as we've been talking about now for the last couple of weeks, we need to get further exposure to the markets, no doubt about that. The question is the patience 
to wait for that correction. Again, what the markets are really good at doing here is keeping this elevation running and it just pulls at you and says, I've got to do something. I just feel this pressure to do something right now. That's how markets work. Markets drag you in by doing these type of advances. They got this way on every last fabric of your resolve until that breaks and you finally say, just you know, forget it, I'm in, and you start buying stocks near their peak and then that's when you get the correction. It is that last pull, that capitulation that drags investors in. So this is the hard part of the markets is look, we've got lots of time ahead of us. We've got years ahead of us to invest. We've got years ahead of us to, to get into markets as we need to. Um, just be patient. You will get a correction. It may, It's going to weigh on every last fray of your nerves, but patience is the difficult part here. So if you need to get exposure, I caution you about jumping in here. We're just simply too overbought right now. You're going to get a correction in the next month or so. Use that as an opportunity to increase exposure. But just again, you know, you just take the risk of jumping in now that you're going to be buying near a short-term peak. But we'll talk about it more in the show this morning. We'll get to those questions right here. But that's what you need to know before the bell. We'll be right back after the break. Pick up with Danny Ratliff. More of the Real Investment Show coming up. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So welcome back to the show this morning. Of course, as I was saying, we're still you know right here in the midst of and heart of earnings season. And of course, uh, this morning, uh, we're going to be dealing with the results of Microsoft and Google yesterday uh, announcing earnings. Again, really kind of in the forefront of that AI chase right now. Um, today, we have Meta, uh, Facebook, Meta, depends on how old you are, depending on which one you remember. Uh, <laughs> AT&T, ADP, Boeing, Chipotle, Mexican Grill, uh, Coca-Cola. I always like Chipotle, Mexican Grill because... You know, this is the world's most expensive burrito in terms of valuations. But it's always interesting to listen to the report about consumers because eating at Chipotle is not cheap, by the way. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's good food. It's good fast food. Uh, but it's not cheap uh, to eat there. So it's always interesting to see, you know, if you're kind of trying to get a pulse on what consumers are doing, if they start to pull back from Chipotle, you know you're probably at a, a turning point economically, right? So if you've been expecting a big recession coming and that we're going to have this big contraction in consumer spending, pay attention to Chipotle's uh, earnings call today and see what they say about the consumer because that's going to be kind of a good thing. Uh, Coca-Cola uh, as well, eBay. Uh, Hilton, Mattel. Uh, Mattel's obviously uh, been doing well lately. And uh, Union Pacific. So again, and this has been one of the things that we talked about here recently too, is that you know rail stocks and transportation stocks have been doing, transportation stocks in general, have been doing really well. Um, despite these worries and concerns about a slowing economy, which you know that would translate directly into weaker transportation, right? If you're buying less, you have less stuff to transport. Uh, transportation stocks are, are doing fantastic. In fact, uh, transportation's well outpacing industrials, and under Dow theory, tells you that you're in a, a bull market. So it says the economy's firing on all cylinders. But again, this really kind of flies in the face of, of other stuff that's going on. So anyway, uh, lots of earnings coming in today uh, that we'll have to pay attention to. And again, um, you know, like I said, you, you know, the the 
kind of the initial push this morning uh, will be from uh, Microsoft and from Google. So there you go. So uh, over the weekend, as I said, we uh, had an economic kind of, you know, half year review of the markets, economics, things like that. I, I joined Danny and Rich to talk about that. We had so many questions, we couldn't literally get to all of them in an hour. And Danny's really kind of the, you know, the commandant when it comes to time clocks on these candy coffee, so we can't run over by a minute. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> But, you know, so right mid-sentence, you just cut me right off. It's like, that's that's uh, that's all we have time for today. Anyway, we're going to try to catch up on some of those uh, questions we didn't get to. Uh, but we only have about 40 minutes here to get that done. So, our, you know, Sir Commandant Dove, let's get to the questions. What you got? Well, I, I think that there's so many great questions that we receive on Saturdays and leading up to it. However, a lot of them are very similar in nature. So I think sometimes it may be frustrating because you feel like, hey, we're not answering that question specifically. But really... We probably have. It's just in a roundabout way. Um, and so want to just take a little bit of time to address some of these bigger picture items and, and questions, because a lot of them were very, very similar. But one that comes up over and over that we've talked about quite a bit. So this may be a tad bit redundant. And some of this probably will be just because we talk about this stuff every day. Right. Yeah. Um, but somebody asked, you know, is your firm subject to ESG scores ratings? And if so, how does it affect your investing strategy? Now, I know these the answers to these questions. Yeah. Um, how do you rank investment funds, companies participating in the ESG playbook? We don't. Um, the reason, short sweet. I knew that. Yeah, well, no, the reason we don't is, is because ESG ratings are nebulous. They're not based on any fundamental factors, and it's nothing you can actually measure. Again, you know, this is one of the, the huge problems with ESG, and we've written numerous articles. If you go to our website, uh, realinvestmentadvice.com, type in the word ESG in the search bar right at the top of our website, um, you'll come up with several articles. In fact, I just wrote one on this recently talking about the inevitable death of ESG investing. And the reason for that is that, you know, this whole push for ESG was based around these kind of lofty goals of, of reducing emissions, et cetera. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, as we've talked about before here on the show, we produce oil in a much more economically, uh, environmentally friendly manner than we did 30, 40 years ago. Um, we produce natural gas in a much cleaner, friendlier way than we did 20, 30, 40 years ago. I grew up in a chemical producing town, which the regulations over the last 30, 40 years have drastically cleaned up. And, you know, by magnitudes of production, the, 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 exp the uh, runoffs and, and other environmentally unfriendly things that used to occur no longer happen anymore. So we have, we have done, we have made tremendous leaps and strides in becoming much more economically friendly and environmentally friendly of these companies over the last 30, 40 years. So the problem is, is though, when you have companies that buy carbon credits from somebody else. So in other words, we've talked about before, I can be the worst coal polluting company on the planet and all I have to do to meet an ESG score is go buy a carbon tax credit from somebody else. That does nothing for the environment, but I can be rated environmentally friendly. So why would I include that in my analysis? And, and so ESG really has no fundamental factors. And we talked about this before as a fad, and now it's going away. And we said the reason that it would eventually go away is exactly what happened in 2020. ESG was we hate oil. We hate, you know, oil production. It's, it's terrible for the environment. And nobody wanted to own energy stocks in 2020, 2021 because of ESG. In 2022, they couldn't buy enough of them. And as we said before, it's all about performance at the end of the day. And when stocks begin to perform, regardless of their ESG ratings, 
that's where money's going to flow to, and, and you've got to make money with it. Stocks were up 40% versus the market being down 20 in 2022. Same thing we saw with sin stocks back in the late 90s. No pornography, no tobacco, no alcohol, no gambling. Those were the best performing stocks during the dot-com crisis. So, you know, it's all, you know, all these things are great. All these theses are fantastic. But trading stocks, me buying a stock from Danny, Danny giving me his shares, I give him my cash, does nothing for the environment. So ESG as a function has absolutely nothing to do with investment management and, and why you shouldn't include it because it will only hurt you in the long run. Okay. Well, and so let's take that one step further. Sure. So now many people, there's lots of different ways to access this, right? Everybody's packaging these up and bundling them together sure. and saying, look at this great ETF or a great mutual fund. And it's been all the rage. What do you say to somebody who's looking to invest like that? You can. Um, you're going to pay four times as much for buying an S&P index fund. Yeah. Um, we did the analysis as well on our website. The difference between the top 10 holdings of the BlackRock ESG fund and the S&P index is one holding. That is the only difference between the top 10 holdings of those ETFs, which make up about 30% of the, of the ETF itself. The only difference was is that in the BlackRock ETF, which was in the ESG ETF, was their stock. In other words, BlackRock was in the top 10 holdings of their ESG fund versus the S&P index. The correlation between the two indexes was 99.1%. The only difference being, again, is that BlackRock put their stock in the top 10 holdings. So when you buy the ESG fund, you're boosting Larry Fink's net worth by, by boosting the asset price of BlackRock stock in that ESG. Performance was 99.1% correlated. In other words, they were exactly the same over the holding period of those two ETFs. The difference was that the BlackRock ESG ETF charged you four times as much as the S&P index for exactly the same amount of performance. Yeah, so, so it really wasn't worth it in that instance. It never are. Yeah. So moving on here. I know So it, it, a lot of you listen to us on AM700 here live uh, locally here in Houston, but a lot of we do have a lot of followers across the globe at YouTube. So Real Investment Show, go check it out. But we have a lot of people who live in Europe or overseas. Sure. How do they invest in these markets? And do you need to be worried about currency exchanges, things like yes. that? Um, if, you're, if you live overseas and you work in a, in a foreign currency, you've got to hedge your currency risk. So there are, there are ETFs that you can do that, like there's the Emerging Market Hedged. Emerging Markets ETF is an example, um, which hedges for the dollar. So you can use an ETF like that. Or you're going to have to hedge for the dollar, conver uh, dollar currency conversion uh, risk that you have between your currency and the U.S. dollar, either going up or down over time. So if, if you want to invest in U.S. markets, you do have to take into account the currency risk that, you, that you're undertaking. Well, just like we do domestically when we invest overseas. Right, exactly. That's why you can use like a hedged ETF. If you want, um, Wisdom Tree, as an example, makes a hedged emerging markets ETF. So if I want to invest in emerging markets, but also account for that dollar that dollar risk, yeah. that ETF will actually hedge that risk for you. So you don't have to try to do the math yourself. Yeah, especially in this environment right now where we are seeing Eurozone slow down, China mm -hmm. slowing down, Japan. I yeah. mean, there's other broader issues. Exactly. But I mean, it, there's really, you know, um, most markets pretty much track the same. There was a good, uh, there was an interesting comment about that this morning on Twitter is that I made this comment yesterday that the rally in the U.S. stocks this year has been entirely a function of valuation expansion. In other words, the P's gone up, but not the E. 
And so somebody commented back, it's like, well, how do you explain the German DAX, which is the German uh, stock market? How do you explain it being near all-time highs, but yet its valuation expansion is about flat? Well, the difference is, is that over the last 13 years, the German index is up about 200%. The U.S. index is up about 400%. So if you took out the valuation expansion and reverted the S&P back to what valuation should be relative to earnings, we would probably be up about as much as the DAX this, uh, to this point. In other words, our index would be up about 200% versus 400% um, because Germany didn't have the same impulses through Fed monetary interventions, et cetera, that we had in the U.S. So, again, the German index is probably trading closer to fair value than the U.S. market by a long stretch. Yeah, so, um, all right, here's here's a big one that everybody wants to know, which we can address on the other side of the break. Go ahead. What's the question? We'll, we'll tease them. So, interested in a six-month outlook on Fed holding rates. Okay. And what sector is most likely to break first? Okay. When we come back from the break, we'll do it. Don't go away. Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. Okay, back to questions. Um, these are qu so just to, to, in case you're just uh, tuning in with us this morning, we're we had over the weekend candy coffee. Uh, I joined Danny and Rich to kind of just talk about our mid-year update and kind of where we are. Um, Brent will be posting that video on the website here this week, so you'll have access to that to that replay. But we had uh, so many questions. We had questions coming in as we were wrapping up the the, the, the candy coffee. We just couldn't get to them all. You know, we would love to answer. You know, we could spend literally. We could have probably spent six hours on Saturday answering questions. There were just so many of them, but. Just that's not feasible. And, so, and don't take it personal for yeah, not yeah. answering your question, please. And sometimes your questions are very similar to things we just talked about. Yeah. So keep that in mind. I mean, you know, if you're asking for, you know, where where a stock is going to be at, you know, two o'clock tomorrow. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't either. Yeah. So, so okay, you know, one of the bigger ones as well was interested in a six month outlook on Fed holding rates. And so exactly really what, what does the Fed do? Where do they go from here? Uh, this is on everybody's mind. Obviously, today is a big day. Fed's coming out. Yeah. Um, and then we'll see what happens. I guess what yeah, bigger and, picture is going to be? What do they talk about, like for forward yeah. guidance, kind of right? Well, yeah. Look, and they've been very clear. Um, you know, this is I don't know why there, there's this big mystery around. You know, what's the Fed going to do six months from now? A, who knows? Um, but B, they don't know. But, yeah, they don't know. And but they've been very clear. Is like, look, they're going to hike rates, and they're going to be higher for longer. That's I, that's they've been very clear about this. Is that they're going to hike rates until 
inflation is on a clear and sustained trajectory back to 2%. And so far, we are on a trajectory to 2%. The Fed is likely to hike rates tomorrow because the markets have already green-lighted them to do so. It will likely be their last rate hike um, unless they start to see a concern about a resurgence in inflation, which is a possibility. Housing prices are back on the rise. They run about a three-month lag. That is going to feed through. That is the largest contributor to the CPI index. So in three or four months, if we start seeing hotter rates of inflation due to rising housing prices, then the Fed will likely talk about maybe hiking rates again. The goal for the Fed is to get rates down and to keep them down uh, in terms of the rate of inflation. And in order to do that, that means sustained higher rates on Fed funds. Uh, we'll see how long that lasts, but eventually their goal ultimately, as they've been very clear about, is to bring unemployment up to around 4%. That will quell consumption and that will reduce inflation. You take a look at consumer confidence indexes. Those are rising sharply. That is going to feed to into consumer sentiment. Consumer sentiment feeds into to activity in the economy. That's going to lead to inflationary pressures. That's not what the Fed wants. The Fed also doesn't want rising stock prices because that also feeds into consumer sentiment, which also impacts inflation by raising it. So again, there's some forces that are working against the Fed cutting rates sometime soon. So I wouldn't expect it. They may not. They may stop hiking rates, but they're likely not going to cut anytime soon. Well, and I think it's a fair question though, because you know, just a year and a half ago, the Fed was also saying, we're not going to hike rates. We're not going to hike rates. Inflation is transitory. And then boom, right. they started, you know, hiking rates in the fastest manner they've ever have. So, you know, that's fair because look, they don't know yeah. what economic data yeah. we're going to get and how they're going to have to react to it. Now we can all probably look back and say, well, we're probably a little bit behind the curve. Yeah. But in the end, they're, they're going to be behind the curve when they start cutting too, but they're going to cut rates when there's an economic problem. If there's no economic problems, there's no reason to cut rates. Yeah, but so the housing thing is is a big conundrum, I think, in many ways, because nobody wants to move if you have a mortgage rate. Right? You, you can't. So there's a lack of inventory, which is still keeping those prices elevated. Right. When does that stop? It doesn't. So they're uh, just going to uh, remain uh, elevated. Yeah, as long, yeah, as long as... As long as housing, so the, the, you, you're really kind of in a bind, right? Yeah. So if I'm, if I'm 60, right, and I own a house and I have a 3% mortgage, why am I going to move to buy a house with a 7% mortgage? Oh, correct. Correct? So well, anybody for that matter. Right. I mean, so when rates come back down again, the price of my house will elevate, and then I can sell my house and I can buy another house with a 3% mortgage, but I'm going to pay a lot more for that house. Yeah. So we're getting to the point of where people are now trapped in their homes, which is going to keep inventory suppressed. Correct. On on an existing home basis. Now on a new home basis, we'll have new homes being built. So. Yeah, but at what cost? Well, yeah, but that's thing that you you know, and this is the interesting thing about the housing market is that it's like everybody, well, houses are unaffordable. Um, well, that's because of you. <laughs> you keep demanding more and more house for your money and by the fed when the fed cuts rates you will run out and buy a bunch of houses and you overpay for the house that you want to buy because of low interest rates because you want a 3000 square foot house when you really can only afford a 1500 square foot house but you keep driving the house price up by your demand right and so the market absorbs that that demand and they increase the price of the inventory that they're selling that's supply and demand that's basic economics so if you want housing prices to come down a lot and stay down rent 
quit buying houses until the prices come down. <laughs> that's the only option. As long as the Fed keeps rates low, and that means 7% or below, that's low rate. You know, back when Brent and I were first buying our houses, rates were 10, 12, 15%, and you had to have a 20% down payment. That kept housing prices down because it took time for people to buy a house, and it took time, and they had to buy smaller houses because of higher rates. Once we took away the 20% down payment, started coming up with all these newfangled multi-mortgage applications and all this other stuff to get people into houses with no money down, you elevate house prices. If you want house prices down, 20% down payments, no funny mortgages. You get a 30-year mortgage, 20% down payment, housing prices will come down. Why? Because demand will come down. It's simple math, people. Go ahead. All right. So I know we kind of got off on like the internals of this on on what rates look like. So how do you invest in a, in a economy like this for around fixed income? Around fixed income? Yeah. Well, rates are going to come down. Have to. Um, economy is going to slow back. So we we injected the economy with $5 trillion worth of liquidity. That boosted GDP, nominal GDP to 12%. That that liquidity is now leaving the market. So the economy will will return back to trend, which is 2% growth because of the debt because of the deficits, and interest rates will ultimately fall on, on long-dated treasuries back towards 2%, because the, the long-term correlation between interest rates, inflation, and economic growth is all going to revolve back around economic growth, because that's just what supports interest and inflation. So if economic growth returns to 2%, which it will, or less, um, and especially if you're wanting a recession, then interest rates are going to fall. So, so here's another question we're getting frequently, which we're already in long dated bonds and been increasing duration mm-hmm. a little bit over time here. Um, where, when's the perfect time? Which this is this is always the one that's that's interesting. Mm-hmm. When exactly is the perfect time to like buy something that's longer longer dated, like a treasury? You don't know. Yeah, yeah. There's no way to tell. You just have to buy it and and have an expectation that over the next three to five years, interest rates are going to return to the rate of economic growth. So you buy them here while rates are high. Yeah, and you're getting paid a little bit more for them at the moment sure. as well. Absolutely. All right, so I'm going to flip the script here because we've, you know, historically we're getting a lot of pretty bearish questions. Uh, yep. This this one's a little bit opposite. So, are economists getting fooled by the rate of change models? If actual corporate earnings, employment, factory orders, GDP, et cetera, are still higher than December 2019 levels or above long-term trends, why are so many anxious about a recession? Um, it's a good question, and he's right. Um, you know, there, you know, there's. The, when you look at annual rate of changes, that can be deceiving because you're looking at where were you at this time last year, right? Yeah. And so you take a look at the annual rate of change in manufacturing indexes, et cetera. So we're looking at big declines in the manufacturing indexes. Those are at very, very low levels now on an annual rate of change. So just as we move forward, even if the economy just stabilizes, those annual rate of changes will start to increase simply because of how we measure the annual rate of change. You're just measuring from where you were last year, this year. Inflation is very much the same way. Is that, again, we've talked about this before, if gas is $4 a gallon, and in 12 months you go buy a gallon of gas, it's still four gallons, inflation is zero in, in gas, but you're still paying the same price for it. So the annual rate of change is a very, very... Um, interesting measure, and when you have to, when you look at economic data on an annual rate of change, you have to calculate and compensate for economic issues, other economic issues that are that are buying into that, and that's what that's why the market tends to lead the economy. The market begins to sniff out 
that we're near a trough in economic activity, and, and that's why the markets are rallying now, because we're likely, with uh, consumer sentiment increasing, you're about to start see the annual rate of change, and a lot of these economic indicators begin to improve over the next few months. So what is it going to be different where we're not looking at the rate of change per se, especially with demographics? When does demographics actually start to play or factor into this, especially, you know, looking at Japan, I think they're 14 years, you know, declining as far as their demographics. You look at everywhere else. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's a big push. I saw, what is it, Time Magazine had, uh, you know, the the new financial independence is not having kids, basically. Yeah. Well, look, if if you want stronger economic growth, you have to have kids, right? Yeah. Um, And... The problem with declining demographics is really twofold. You know, you and you and Rich are always big advocates of, you know, Social Security is going to be here forever and it's going to just pay for everybody to have everything they want in retirement. Well, something's going to be here because it's going to be required because nobody can save any money. Money's got to come from somewhere to fund it. Yeah. Well, so, they, they will. It'll right? be higher taxes. Okay. But in 1932, you had when, uh, sorry, 1940, but- you had 16 people paying into Social Security versus less than two people today. So you're going to tax the 2% of people paying into Social Security 100% of their income. It's not sustainable. You can, you can, I mean, you can keep printing debt, but you got to have somebody to buy the debt. At some point, you got to have somebody pay all this. And if you don't have the population for it, there's your problem. And, yeah. the, and this is the whole problem with, you know, the trends that we have in society today is that, you know, a lot of these things that we're promoting and, and, and pushing for it's awesome you live your life the way you want like it's like you know we're back in the hippie days of the 70s right sex drugs rock and roll right you live your life that's awesome but there's economic consequences for not having children oh yeah it's significant yeah and you have too too few children too much debt you got real problems in the next 30 to 50 years well we spend money the way this country does and, and many others it's even more problematic Right, but when uh, more than 100 cents of every dollar of tax revenue is going in to just pay for welfare and interest on the debt, yeah, you better have more children. So where are you going to cut Be it? Be right back. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. All right, sorry, ran out of time in the last segment. Um, But yeah, I mean, you know, the, uh, you know, as we're trying to just wrap up here, we got a few minutes to get through a few more questions here. Look, there, there is a, a real probability that you're going to see economic data start to improve. And there's also a real possibility that we could see another bout of economic weakness in late 2024, early 2025 because of the you know retraction of liquidity within the economy. It's you know it's the, the lag effect, may be very well pushed out. So in other words, we see a recovery economically and everybody goes, oh, there's no recession. And then the recession occurs because this was what we said last year on the show is that so many people were expecting a recession that a recession wouldn't, would likely not happen because everybody was expecting it. Yeah. And so markets were pricing for it. Now everybody's beginning to believe that no recession is going to occur, which now allows for a recession to actually occur. 
I know it's 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 counterintuitive, but that's just the way kind of markets work in terms of pricing things out. So well, it's anyway. also interesting looking at the consumer, looking at higher rates, what that does mm-hmm. to businesses, profit margins decreasing. Mm-hmm. You look at the health of all this, and yeah, know, but it, again, you had five trillion dollars worth of liquidity in the markets, which boosted these margins to historically high records. So it takes a long time for those margins to get reversed. Yeah. So I'll go. I'll take a step back. So last segment we talked a little bit about interest rates, what the Fed's going to do. So there could be risk within treasuries for the next six to 12 months that could remain elevated. We could see them mm-hmm. trend a little bit higher sure. before probably making that, that pathway down. Correct. Right. Yeah. And th- but this is, this is the whole point of investing is that, you know, you've got to determine what you're investing for. And if you're investing, if you're just wanting to trade the market, I just want to, you know, whatever the market's doing today, that's what I want to do. Then, you know, just go buy an index fund. You're fine. Um, but if you're investing for outcomes, those outcomes take time. So you have to buy things when nobody else wants them. And you're going to have to wait for that investment opportunity to occur. You'll be well rewarded for it, but you've got to wait. It's like buying value stocks. Value stocks don't perform in ripping bull market returns, but they perform over time because they won't lose 90% of their value like we saw a lot of stocks do back in 2020. Value will outperform over time, over growth, but you've got to be willing to give it the time to do that. Investing is about time. Investing is about having opportunity when nobody else wants something and then being able to see down the road far enough to say, this is how this is going to work. And if, and you know, if you can't do that, then you need to think about a different strategy for your investing. Yeah. Well, you look at all the, the speculative type of advertising everybody's putting mm-hmm. out. I mean, it's very difficult to think about the long-term trajectory of funds, right? right. How money works. It's, Hey, I want to get rich quick. I mean, right. well, on. But, how, but how many people do you meet with every day that say, I want to get rich quick versus, oh, I'm a long-term investor. I'm very conservative. And then everybody's, they, they, everybody's they, a long-term investor until they look at returns <laughs> like, wait, I wanted to get rich quick. Look at this one. Why, why did we not invest yeah, over here? Exactly. Well, so, because the risk reward yeah. probably wasn't in your favor because you also said you didn't want to lose any money or you wanted very little downside, right? You can't, you can't have it both ways. No, that's exactly right. And so, um, all right, um, the, here's the one everybody wants. What exactly should you invest in right now? Bitcoin. <laughs> I'm joking. Hang on. You, you know that's going to be somebody's going to take that piece and it's going to be I, all over. I, I, I know. Look, I'm, I'm joking. Yeah, no, I, I was kind of joking with that question too. But we do get a lot of questions on it. Like, what sectors would you stay away from? Where do you see the next thing to break? Where's the bubble? And and I think that's so difficult right now. But we've had a lot of underperforming sectors for the mm-hmm. year. We're starting to see better market breadth. Right. So, we talked we talked about sector rotation earlier this year. Yep. That's been performing well as of late, but that's taken time for that to occur. Again, time. It takes time for those sector rotations to occur. Now everything is getting pretty overbought. So if you were going to invest in something today, as I said in this morning's kind of uh, you know before the bell wrap, is I would be patient and wait because everything is so extended and deviated now above long-term means that you're going to get a 3 to 5% correction probably in the next month or two or three that will give you a better opportunity to buy some of these stocks at a little better risk-reward basis. But again, you know, uh, you know, if the economy is improving, which it appears to be, then you'll want to move away from more defensive positions in the economy and move into more offense offensive or relative performers. In other words, uh, cyclical stocks uh, like technology, like discretionary, like consumer um, consumer issues, that those are going to perform better in a recovering economy 
um, along with, you know, uh, stocks like energy stocks. If the economy is recovering, that means people are going to pick up on demand. They're going to travel more, those type of things. This is why airline stocks have been doing better. Um, energy stocks should start to perform better as well just from an increase in demand. Yeah, it sells. Actually, that leads into the next question. So what do we think about commodities in general? Uh, commodities are inflation product. So, you know, this is this is going to be one of the real conundrums is that if inflation is falling, then you've got to have weaker demand. Right. And that's what the Fed is, is banking on right now. But again, if you're going to have a stronger economy, that's going to pick up on and increase inflation. Right. Because you have more activity, which would be good for commodities, particularly like companies like things like oil, which is going to put the Fed back on rate hiking mode. So this is going to be a real kind of conundrum. And this is the problem with rising stock markets, right? And, and, and for the Fed, right? The, what, what does the Fed want? The Fed wants to get inflation down and keep it down. And a rising stock market boosts consumer confidence, which increases economic activity, which leads to higher inflation. So the market is working against what the Fed is doing. So the Fed and the markets are about to have to come to a head-to-head -head fight here pretty soon. And who's going to win is going to be the question. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting looking back and just thinking about all the things that have occurred with the Fed. And, you know, when we were at 2%, we, we were struggling to get to 2% inflation for so long. Right. And, Couldn't get there. You know, hey, we'd love to get back to 3 or 4% growth and, and see a little bit more. Now that we're actually there, now they want to, well, we need to get back to 2 All right. Yeah. yeah. Makes no uh, sense. Don't, we don't like 4 <laughs> Yeah. We, we what had happened four. to that? Yeah, we had 4 We had 12% we had nominal growth um, in 2020. So, I mean, you know, it is pretty amazing you know, we got there and everybody was like, oh, this is this is awesome. It took five trillion in artificial stimulus to do yeah, it. Yeah, the but, byproduct of all the stimulus. Yeah. And then you go, hey, we get inflation. Oh, we don't like this. Uh, you know, you got to pick your poison. Either you want slow economic growth and low inflation or you want high economic growth and high inflation. You can't have both. They, they track together. Well, especially when you shut down the, the factories and you, all of a sudden you can't get yeah. supplies. I mean, so you give everybody money that's inflationary. You give, you give everybody money and then tell them, oh, don't worry about paying your mortgage, your rent, your student you know, loans. Yeah, student loan debt, whatever, you know, that typically your necessities. Well, then, of course, yeah. it's going to be super inflationary. And, that, and, look, and, and uh, look, here's the bottom line with all this. I have no idea where the economy or the markets are going to be six months from now, much less the end of next week. Um, Nobody does. But I'll tell you the one thing that I am watching very closely, because I don't think the markets are pricing this in, is that potential repayment of student loan debt. So you think that's going to be a much bigger deal than what most people are making it out to be? Yeah. Um, it's, it's $12 to $15 billion a month in potential spending. Yeah. And I don't think markets are priced, or I don't think markets are giving that enough weight. Again, what we always talk about is that unexpected exogenous event that occurs. Now, this isn't really exogenous because every not, everybody knows, at least Which, right now, that the student loan payments are going to restart. Yeah, M Markets are kind of hoping that the Biden administration is going to figure a way around that. But if they don't and those repayments restart and it becomes a bigger hit to retail sales, I think that's potentially one of those events that the market's not really priced for that could give you a decent correction. Now, I'm not talking about falling back into a bear market but it could give you a decent-sized correction as the market has to adjust for those lower uh, retail sales. But doesn't it have a little bit of time to digest? So if we know that they're about to have to start making payments once again. Well, we, we've known this for a couple of months. Yeah, so right? it's not that unexpected part of it, but it's also going to take a minute to get the data to show the impact right. of the market. But the market hasn't really adjusted, particularly on the discretionary side. Yeah. You know, Amazon and, and those discretionary stocks still rallying pretty sharply. Um, again, maybe I'm wrong. We'll see. Maybe it is a nothing burger, kind of like the Nasdaq rebalancing was a nothing burger. 
but again, I just I just don't know. I just don't think I think most of the market participants are going, oh, it's it's a nothing burger now, and they're not really giving it the weight. And that's potentially, and again, this is why I say potentially, we have to wait and find out. But that's where we could see a fairly sharp drop in retail sales. And everybody goes, oh my gosh, you know, I thought this was not gonna be as as deep as it was. Well, they'll probably just, hey, we're not gonna you you're not you're still gonna have to make your payments, but here's stimulus money to figure it out. Maybe. But you gotta get that passed. Yeah, that's true. All right, so one last question. We got a little bit of time, and we did spend a little bit of time on this um, on Saturday. But this is one that keeps popping up in the chat groups and just about everywhere. And what are the concerns with the BRICS new digital gold-backed currency? And how many more of these types of ideas are going to be floated out? I think with the more technological advancements that we're seeing, you know, countries are probably going to be more prone and apt to do something at least give probably their citizens the idea that they're doing more because now everybody that, you know, nobody wants to invest in the dollar supposedly. Well, 70% of the world's transactions still occur in the dollar. That Correct. hasn't changed for decades and that's not going to change. And again, it's, it's, you know, every time we turn around, there's some new things like, Oh, this country has agreed to do business in such and such a currency. Um, the emerging market economies, you don't want to do business. Most people don't want to do business with them uh, in their currency because the, the governments are corrupt. Uh, just like we saw recently with Russia, Russia sees the assets of three big companies because they can. Yeah, who's that? Dannon and uh, yeah. I mean, several very and, large companies. Yeah, very large companies just seize their assets, and that's exactly why we don't have a Russian ruble as a reserve currency because you have to store your currency, your reserves in that currency, and if any day the the country can come in and go, yeah, those are mine now. Um, that doesn't really work well. So again, it's it's this is all great commentary. Look, the dollar got very exaggerated. We had a big sell-off in the dollar back in 2020. We had a huge rally in the dollar following that. The dollar decline right now is not the end of the currency. It's not a devaluation. It's nothing than really the dollar returning back to its normal trading range relative to other currencies, which allows for better economic trade on a global basis. The dollar will be rallying most likely next year. So, again, it just ebbs and flows along with economic growth. The stronger economic growth, the higher the dollar. The lower the economic growth, the weaker the dollar. That's just the way it works. Have a great day. We'll be back next uh, tomorrow uh, with Michael Leibowitz. We'll be talking about the Fed's last rate hike. Maybe. We'll see what they say today. Uh, we'll talk about it more in the morning right here with Michael Leibowitz. Have a great day. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. If you've got any questions or comments, emails, let us know. Happy to help you out. See you next time.